0: We're going to look at Jesus's life as a boy. Yeah, I was reflecting this week how, how strange a breed of people are those that are new parents, right? Do you remember if you had kids, what new parenthood looked like? Uh, many new parents would do anything for their baby, especially their firstborn. Long before birth, they usually make arrangements for their baby, where, where they will sleep, what they will wear, most new parents they say they can spend upwards of $500 to five hundred to a thousand dollars just to be prepared for that little baby, and then when the baby comes, they continue to spend money with diapers and food. And with the firstborn, you usually take a lot of pictures, right? And if you have multiple kids, you just find out that down the line there's less and less pictures. Uh, for us, it's the same process. But it, with, even with kids, we had clothes that we bought for the first one and passed on. People have asked whether we wanted to try to have a baby boy. And I usually say, and I don't mean this mean-spirited, four weddings are better than five. So we just stuck with four girls. And if we had a boy, he'd be wearing girls' clothes. So it just worked out. But God's plan for us to just have four girls. But in that, children are a privilege. And our families are in our church family. There's many in this church family that are spiritual aunts and uncles to my kids and to many other kids here, and they're a privilege. But the most important thing for parents to do for their children is to train them to love God. And we see that this morning, reading the Bible, talking about God, praying together, coming together to worship God. That's our greatest responsibility as parents. And this passage deals with with Jesus as a baby and and then as a preteen, and and we'll see most clearly what Joseph and Mary were doing when Jesus was young. And twice in this passage this morning, Luke brings out this phrase concerning Jesus that he grew increasing in wisdom and favor with God. And so here's the main idea, and it should be on the screen if you're following along. And again, I encourage you again, if you're taking notes of anything that I say, Get this, it gets the synopsis of all that we're going to talk about. This is the main idea. We grow in wisdom and favor when we are surrounded by godly people. We grow in wisdom and favor when we're surrounded by godly people. And so we're going to see in this how Jesus was raised by godly, faithful, obedient parents and also those that surrounded him. And, And this is a special passage here in Luke. This is the only one in all of Scripture that talks about Jesus after his infancy. This is the only glimpse we have. And so In this, we have three points that I want to cover. Jesus had obedient parents. Jesus had godly examples. And third, Jesus had faithful parents. We'll see the the bookends there of his mom and dad. So first, Jesus had obedient parents. Look at verse 21, chapter 2. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And what we see here in this just few verses is these, um, Joseph and Mary show their obedience by naming their child Jesus. They did what was required of what God said, this child we called Jesus. So how, how would they honor, how would they teach their child to honor the Lord if they couldn't honor him in this way? They name him Jesus. It was customary in those days, though, for their son to receive his name at the time of circumcision. It's usually then tied to the family tree somewhere. But the name that Joseph and Mary choose is the same that was told them by the angel, Jesus, which means the Lord saves. And they also obey the Levitical law. In Leviticus 12, 1 and 2, and I'll read it. You can turn there if you want, but I'll just read the the two verses. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a, a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of a meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. So what we see in this passage is Joseph and Mary carefully following the law. They circumcised Jesus on the eighth day and take him to Jerusalem to present him to God. And verse 23 reminds us that this baby belongs to God. Because in the Exodus out of Egypt, when God spared the lives of Israel's firstborn children, God also laid claim to the firstborn as his own. They were dedicated to the Lord. And Joseph and Mary follow this in obedience to the Lord here. And so when Luke says that Jesus grew in wisdom and favor with God, it's it's natural because he had righteous and obedient parents and so what we learn from that parents is we have a tremendous influence on our kids what they regard as plausible and the faith is often shaped by how we practice our faith how we live impacts how our kids live their inconsistencies and hypocrisies are often seen in us first Isn't that true, parents? Can you acknowledge that or think through that? You see something in your kids and you realize, yeah, they got that from me. They've watched me for years and now they're copying me. And that's why having believing, righteous, obedient parents are key for spiritual growth for Christians. And I want you to know, parents, we're with you in this. We're walking through in this this journey with you. But I have to ask, is your obedience to the Lord and his word consistent and thorough as we see with Joseph and Mary here in this passage? What do our children learn about following God and serving him as they watch us? And you don't have to have it all and have riches to serve the Lord here. Joseph and Mary were not rich by any means. In fact, they were poor. They couldn't afford a lamb, as Leviticus said. Instead, they had a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. So obedience, parents, even in poverty, makes a difference in our children's lives. It's not about what we can give our kids in material things or even experiences, but how we model for them faithful obedience to the Lord. We will model for our kids what a healthy marriage looks like or doesn't look like. We will model for our kids what a healthy church member looks like or doesn't look like. We will model for our kids what an honest worker looks like or doesn't look like. We will model for them what what prayer means. And so, don't walk away beat up, friends, because as you sit and breathe right here, you have an opportunity to confess and repent of your unrighteous disobedience to the Lord. And He is gracious. He is kind. And you have the opportunity today to make things right, to, to start a new path, and to encourage not only yourself and your walk with the Lord and your spouse, but your kids in that. I mean, there is nothing really like parenting that makes us insecure about our frailties, so we need to lean into the Lord. So first, Jesus had obedient parents. Second, Jesus had godly examples. So as we keep walking through this passage, verses 25 through 40, introduce to us two characters, Simeon and Anna. And this has got to be my favorite part of the passage. We know nothing of these two before they're mentioned here in Luke's gospel, and we hear nothing from them afterwards. But what we learn from them is that they're godly examples. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. If you remember, again, backing up, Simeon lived in a period of time that was marked by silence from heaven. As we come into the Gospel of Luke, as we close the last Old Testament book of Malachi, there had been 400 years of silence from God. 400 years. Think back 400 years in our history. How long ago is 400 years? 1620. Do you know what happens in August of 1620? The Mayflower set sail 400 years ago next month. So there was no America in 1620. No French Revolution, no American Revolution, no Industrial Revolution. There was no electricity, no vehicles, no airplanes, no iPhones. 400 years ago, no world wars. So a lot of things can happen in 400 years. So you can imagine what 400 years of silence would do to God's people. Zeal for God might have all been extinguished and 400 years people most likely were interested in the latest decrees from Rome than the promises of God and it's encouraging that God doesn't leave himself without a witness he never does his people may be small and seemingly insignificant but the gates of hell will never overcome God's church The church may be pushed to the sidelines in a domineering culture, but it will never die, Jesus said. There was a man named Lot in Sodom. There was an Obadiah in Ahab's household, a Daniel in Babylon, a Jeremiah in Zedekiah's court. And here in the midst of Pharisees and Sadducees, there is a Simeon. He was a righteous and devout man. Luke says, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And we see in Simeon that God will not forget his people. Simeon was an old man when we learn of him, and he spends most of his life looking, Luke says, for the consolation of Israel, the the comfort of his people. And, And it's the people who experience regularly grief and frustration and pain who want to be consoled. The word consolation had been used in the Old Testament. It was here to call attention to God's people of the hope of the coming Messiah. And those Jews would have groaned in times of bondage and wept in times of exile and were presently under the thumb of Rome and were looking for, to heaven for relief. And, and God shares something special with Simeon, that he would see the Messiah before he would die. I wonder if in all the years Simeon believed and heard this, if he had moments of doubt as each year passed, as he got older and older, he, I wonder if he would have, God, is this gonna come true? Am I gonna make it today to see the Messiah? And then I wonder, did he share it with anyone? I mean, would you? 400 years of silence, would you share with someone else? Yeah, I'm gonna see the Messiah before I die. They probably would have laughed at him. They would have mocked him out of fear, probably would have kept it to himself. Otherwise, he would have been known as that loony guy that hung out at the temple. And now on a normal day, we read that coming into the temple would change his life. And Just think, he got up for a new morning, prepared for the day, ate his breakfast, got himself ready and dressed, went to the temple. Perhaps today is going to be just like yesterday. Nothing new. And then this young peasant couple comes in with a baby, and the Holy Spirit helps him know that this is the Savior, this is the Messiah. It's a moving scene to consider, this old man ready to depart this world holding a four- to six-week-old baby who's the consolation of Israel. And he would hold the one in his arms, the one who would bring peace. And then he says in verse 29, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. See, God's salvation is not a what, but a who. To see Jesus is to see God's salvation. And Simeon here doesn't praise the child, but what God will do through the child that he holds in his arms. And one glimpse of this baby the Messiah, he's, he's now ready to go home. He's ready to depart. And I wonder, what, what can allow a mere man to use such language as this in verses 29 through 32? Now, Simeon is, is asking to leave this earth for a better place. What can bring a man to such a place where there's no fear of death? What what takes away the grip of fear that surrounds the impending end of our life? And the only answer is faith. Nothing but a strong faith in God can do this. Faith, laying hold firmly on a Savior. Faith, resting on the promises by an unseen God. It's faith. That's the only way that Simeon can respond this way. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. It's not enough to be sick of this world and the pain and misery that comes with it. It's not enough to be so tired and exhausted or to be indifferent. We have to have something more than this if we desire to depart in peace. We have to have faith like Simeon, faith. And faith is a gift from God. Do you have this type of faith? Well, do you think Simeon was saved? He didn't live to see Jesus live his 33 years on earth. He didn't see Jesus heal and feed people or even die on the cross. He died before Christ died for him. So where do you think Simeon is today? I believe he's in heaven. See, before the cross, God's people were saved on credit, and after the cross, they're saved on debit. Simeon knew himself to be a savior, and he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, saw Christ as the fulfillment of the one who would come to reconcile his people to himself. And so how do Joseph and Mary respond to all this? It, It must have been alarming to them as parents, right? They knew this child was special, but now this happens, and you hear what Simeon says. Well, this is what they respond in verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to, his, to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And Jesus will bring truth to light. And in so doing, he will throw all who come in contact with him into a crisis of decision. And see, what we'll learn through the Gospel of Luke is every person will have to do something with Jesus. You can't be confronted with Jesus and walk away the same. You will either reject him or you will embrace him. You are either following Jesus or dismissing him. There's no middle road. And in that decision of rising or falling, it's life and death. And Jesus triggers the centrally important movement of one's life toward God or away from God. And as much as we want to join Jesus in the positive and the easy and the blessings, the inescapable fact that I was reminded of this week is that anyone who turns on the light will create shadows. Jesus will be a light, and the religious leaders will hate him. They will despise him. They will slander him. And they will seek out to quiet him and then kill him. And see, Luke here introduces the shadow side of Jesus' saving work in verse 35. He says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It seems that Simeon is foretelling the sorrow coming not only on others, but on Mary here. As cutting the and heart piercing as a sword. There's there's a price that Jesus and Mary will pay. And I wonder, I wonder if when the centurion thrusts the spear into the side of Jesus, Mary sensed a sword piercing her very own soul. Jesus was the one who had come to console his people, to bring the peace that was needed between man and God, but it would cost him his life. And Jesus still exposes hearts and provokes opposition. And maybe you're here this morning or listening from home and you sense the opposition to Jesus, and you don't really know where it comes from or even how it got there. It could have been there, developed over the years by things you've heard or studied. But friends, the ultimate source of your opposition to Jesus is your sin. You were born that way, opposed to God. In our sin, we naturally oppose Jesus because we want to be in control of our lives. But God will not always strive with us in our sin. There will come a day when we won't endeavor any longer. That's why he sent a Savior. He sent his Son to die for our sins. And friends, Jesus is a Savior you either love or you hate. And the cross shows us how he feels about us. He loves us. And unbelief and rejection of Jesus shows you don't love him, but you hate him. And for our hate, we deserve eternal death separated from God. But God, in his grace, has given you another day, another opportunity for you to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ alone. And so I encourage you, friends, to to choose Christ. Believe in him so that you'd be saved. And for Christians here listening this morning, we live the same as Simeon. Day in and day out, waiting for Jesus. Charles Spurgeon used to have a plaque above his door that said, Perhaps today. That would remind him every time he walked out of the hope. Perhaps today. Perhaps today we will see Jesus. He is the one worth waiting for. We're not done yet because we're moving from Simeon to Anna. And if you've ever wanted a picture of a true devotion and godliness in their life, you need to look at Anna. Not that Anna, this Anna. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up to that very hour she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And what we learn here, Anna was a prophetess, she was she was not a pastor, she was not a priest, she was a gifted woman who spoke to God's people about God's word. And we're not sure of her age, if my math is correct, if Anna was married at the age of twelve or fourteen, which was common plus seven years of marriage, and then living 84 years as a widow, she would have been at least 103 to 105. And Luke says that she spent the majority of her life in the singular devotion to the things of God. It says she didn't depart from the temple. She loved being around God's people. And she was someone of great self-denial. She was a woman of much fasting and prayer. It says day and night we shouldn't discount a life of quiet service to the Lord because this is what we find in Anna and the blessing that comes to her. And she comes that day to see Simeon blessing this young family. She witnesses her Lord because she was there faithfully. And what we find here in Anna's life is a heart that's grateful. And the Christian heart should be a grateful heart. But I want to... Kindly and graciously give some admonishment to the older saints of our church family. Because sometimes age has a way of making people bitter rather than grateful. I know that many have experienced much grief and pain in their years, but those experiences as a Christian should soften us to the Lord. But for some, it's hardened you to God and toward others. There's some that their heart has shriveled up since those beginning days of following Jesus, and we don't respond the way that we see Anna here. And I don't want that for any of us. And I mean us. I'm 43, but I have the same temptation in my heart as I grow older and older. And we should be thankful Christians, grateful Christians, ready to, to joyfully praise and thank God. And so as we age, as each year passes, we should grow in our joy and our thankfulness for God. And when you realize that God has sent a Savior, you ought to thank Him. And I ask, when was the last time you thanked God for sending Jesus to die for your sins? You know, you can do it right now, even while I'm talking. The Christian heart should be a grateful heart. And so as we age... Let us become experts giving God thanks for the thousands of days of fresh mercy that he has shown us over all the years. He has been faithful to us, hasn't he? And so I want us to be people who are thankful for God's goodness. And if you're going to start gossiping, do what Anna does here. See, so she gives thanks, and she went right to speaking to everyone about Jesus. She becomes a gospel gossip. That's the only gossip that's good. Talking about what Christ has done. See, if you believe the gospel, you should tell others. Start in your own home, one, one another each morning, reminding each other of, of what Christ has done for us. And then as Anna here is just a fantastic example of continuing on, I mean, she she proves to us that you never age out of worship, right? There's never a time where you just say, I'm done with that. She just continues on until the Lord takes her home. And there are women like Anna in our midst in our church family, and I praise God for them. And I pray that we'll have more and more as the years go on. Well, verse 39 here, the end of the section. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So Jesus had godly examples. The last is Jesus had faithful parents. So imagine with Joseph and Mary, you have been entrusted with the Messiah, which in itself is a huge thing right it's one thing just to be entrusted with a child but then realize this is the messiah that they've given to him and then you lose him for three days that's what this next section is here and it's curious i find it curious at least because this is the only part of scripture that we find this out of jesus as right before a teenager look at verse 41 now his parents went to jerusalem every year at the feast of the passover and see here you see the faithfulness and obedience of joseph and mary again Verse forty two And when he was twelve years old they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. See at this time they would travel in such large caravans, it would be easy to have him be a part of another set of a group there in that in that group. Uh, I remember being left at church once when I was young. But I don't think I've done it for my kids yet. But that's what we see here. And they realize that he's not there. A day's journey, and they realize Jesus isn't there. Verse 45, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. We're not sure if it was three days. It could have been as much as five days. Anyways, there's multiple days where Joseph and Mary have lost Jesus. And they find him eventually back in the temple. And I can only imagine what it would have been like for those men to have a theological discussion with the Son of God at 12. I just want to be a fly on that wall. God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything there is to know. And we also learn that Jesus had a divine nature... So does that mean that Jesus knew everything? Well, it's complicated, actually. Touching his divine nature, Jesus knows everything. But touching his human nature, he was not able to know everything. And we understand here in Luke that Jesus learned things. He repeats this multiple times, filled and increasing with wisdom. Jesus is is growing. There are even some things later that he declared that he did not know. In Mark thirteen thirty two, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But Jesus was divine and human. And when Jesus was hungry and when he was tired, there were manifestations of his humanity. But there are times in his earthly ministry, even when Jesus displayed supernatural knowledge, a knowledge above and beyond what is accessible to human insight. So even though the two natures of Jesus are united, they still are distinct from each other. And so for Jesus to be in the temple discussing theology, listening and asking questions should not be confusing. In his humanity, he's growing in his wisdom. But there have been stories as try to explain Jesus as a boy that are outside of scripture. I don't know if you've ever read, uh, this is a story that was written just a few years after the New Testament was was completed, called The Infancy of the Gospel of Thomas. And it was just plain nuts to read. I won't read the whole thing, it's very short, but the author states in this story that the missing years of Jesus' life were filled with all these crazy exploits of this 12-year-old boy. He he portrays a child who has this miraculous power to form birds from mud, and when another boy comes and messes with him, Jesus speaks a curse, and the boy shrivels up and dies. And and the portrait of this tale is just so far outside of Scripture is that this 12-year-old of powerful, uh, uh, magician-like that goes with his power to do whatever he wants— Self-indulgence is, is basically the story, and it's not true. It's not what we find of Jesus and the other portions of Scripture. So I, that's why I find this curious and important that Luke includes this, because this is the only glimpse of Jesus as a boy, and it's not as a magician who performs tricks. He says it's a boy who sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all that were heard him were amazed at this understanding of his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. There there seems to be a faith that Joseph and Mary have in their 12-year-old son, Jesus. I mean, for them to not notice Jesus was gone for a day. That's like driving from Puyallup to Eugene, Oregon and realizing, oops, we don't have Jesus. And you turn around. If they believed Jesus to be an irresponsible child, they probably wouldn't have gone a whole day until they found him. They trusted him. They believed he had good judgment. So this tells us that Jesus' motive for staying behind was not careless or disrespectful. Well, Mary responds, and you can imagine uh, the parents, after multiple days not finding him, um, where you're relieved that you find him, and then this chastisement comes out. And this is what we have from Mary. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And in verse 49, he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Up to this point, all the signs of Jesus' special nature or mission in the world have been given through others, through, through angels and Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah and the shepherds and Simeon and Anna. But now Jesus claims it for himself. This is significant. And what we read here in verses 48 and 49 is a, is a gentle yet clear rebuke to his mother. Mary says... His father, his earthly adoptive father, Joseph, had been looking for him, and Jesus seizes on the mention of a father and teaches who his true father is in heaven. And he's he's saying, This is my real calling, not carpentry. Joseph's house and Joseph's business is not mine. God is my ultimate father, not the carpenter Joseph. I'm going to be back here in some years to show these teachers how I came to fulfill these scriptures. And he's teaching right now. And his words are well chosen. Jesus is not an insensitive or a thoughtless son. If you remember in John's gospel, chapter 2, when Jesus is attending a wedding with his family, and and they run out of wine, the mother comes to him, and she asked him, and and his response, do you remember his response? He he responds that it's not his time. All again is a, a gentle rebuke pointing to what he's going to do at the end. And, and I find it interesting and necessary that he asserts his primacy of, of what his life's going to be like, of his heavenly father and his obedience to him over his earthly family. And Jesus loves his mother very much. He's an excellent son, but he's not a mama's boy. He's showing who he submits to for all of his life. And, and he would submit to his parents. We'll see that in a moment. But his highest submission was to the Father in heaven. And and we see in Jesus his humanity in the temple, not not in the playground, not in the swimming pool. No, he's he's seeking to learn from others and to grow in wisdom. And there's no doubt that he was taught by his parents who, who, by Luke's admission, were faithful in the teaching of the law and the response to the word of God. But in that sentence in verse 49, the 12-year-old Jesus demonstrates profound understanding of his identity and purpose. I believe in these moments Jesus is realizing he is the son of God. But not everyone else gets it. Verse 50, and they did not understand the saying as he spoke to them. I mean, can you blame them? That's hard to understand fully of what's going on here, of its unfolding. But Jesus is making clear that God is his father. He's making clear that he's part of his father's business, and it's now his business. He's not being rude. And we know that because of the next verse, verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. See, Jesus humbly goes home with his parents and continues to submit to him. You know, our experience of coming to understand Jesus is often like Mary. Jesus' identity as the Son of God means that he will always displace things from their seemingly normal place in our lives. Embracing Jesus as your Savior means that other relationships in your life, not to mention things like ambitions and loves and attitudes toward others, will need to be rearranged and reconfigured. Jesus doesn't come into your life as a sticker that you just place there and you just keep going the same way. No, Jesus comes into your life and totally reorients everything. Jesus doesn't come in and accommodate to how you are living. Instead, everything in your life needs to accommodate Jesus. He is the Son of God, so it has to be that way. When we become Christians, everything in our life turns upside down. Everything reorients. It's not so much about us now, it's about Him. Him. Well, another thing we learn here at the end is Jesus was submissive. And we can learn something about this. See, Jesus doesn't use his relationship with his heavenly father as an excuse to rebel against his earthly parents. But Luke says that he was submissive to them. And if there was ever a child on planet Earth who could make the case for not listening to his parents, it would have been Jesus. But Jesus wasn't disrespectful or dishonoring. He's teaching his parents what God had called them to do with his life. And Jesus does this with an attitude of submission to the authorities that his father had placed in his life. And so I want to talk to you just briefly, kids. Your mom and dad has been placed there by God. and So when you submit to mom and dad, you're submitting to God. That's what we learn of Jesus here. That's the example he leaves for you today. So it's good to submit to the parents that God has placed. God knew what He's doing when He placed you in that family those years ago. So learn how to joyfully submit to mom and dad. And for us grown grown ups, it's important for us to understand because we're still called to submit to authorities, and it's not always easy. Respect and submission are not virtues in our society as a whole. Suspicion of authority abounds in our day. Sometimes mistrust of those in authority over us is well earned because authority is abused in this fallen world. And there are many who desire to exercise authority over us for power and for selfish purposes. In addition, the pride in our own hearts inclines us to believe that we generally know better than those that God has placed over us. And it's healthy for us to remember that the authorities that Jesus submits to here, namely his earthly parents, were no less sinful and fallible than those in our own day. And Jesus actually was learning and knew what was best, unlike you and me. Yet he was submissive. He understood that submission to authorities in his life, limited and fallible, were the way of submitting to his heavenly Father. So we need to learn, we need to grow in this, to think the same way as God would give us strength. Luke 2.51 may seem insignificant to us at first blush. But friends, in reality, the entirety of our salvation depends on this verse. Why? Because if Jesus had not been obedient to his parents... He would not be perfectly holy, and he could not be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Everything hinges on the obedience of Jesus. And as a child, he grew into an adult. And our eternity rests on the obedience of Jesus. See, Jesus at 12 was not yet carrying his cross being to Golgotha, but as he obeys his parents, he walks the path that eventually takes him to that hill. As Paul says, he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And friends, he did this for our salvation. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It says, The author of Hebrews says, for the joy. And we ask, what joy? What was waiting for Jesus on the other side of the cross? And it was the joy of seeing his people forgiven. For the joy was set before him, he endured the cross. So friends, we grow in wisdom and favor when we are surrounded by godly people. Jesus grew as a boy through the faithfulness and obedience of his parents and by the witness of godly people in his life. And I pray as a church family we can do the same for each other and for those that follow behind us as we follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word. Let we pray that you would give every one of us wisdom and favor as we serve you. This grace that's so needed. Give us humility that comes from knowing both our sinful state before you and your amazing love for us in Christ. And as you chip away pride from our hearts, we ask that you would ship it out the door of our church and that you would build groups of wise, humble, thankful, and selfless people in our and our church family. Lord, make us those who show your holiness, your unity, and your love to the world around us. I pray that we would be faithful to you, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.